this is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the Full Story Revisited, where we're bringing you our favourite episodes from 2022 all week long. 90 years ago, a white policeman shot and killed a man at Uluru and got away with it. Yukon, a Pitanjara man, was not given a traditional burial after this shooting. His remains were dug up and kept in museums for decades. This was once a really common practice, especially for Aboriginal remains, which we talk about in this episode. But earlier this year, Yukon was finally returned to Uluru in a ceremony unlike any I've ever heard about. Oh, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna... He's, he's been taken away for, for many, many years. Days and night and winter, summer, he's been gone. Family suffering and looking for the answer and we're still looking for it. Now he's, he's coming for us. This episode, we take you inside that ceremony and we also go through the many twists and turns that got us to this moment, including the discovery of a long-lost diary and the forensic search of these human remains held in museums. That's coming up after the break. So, Lorena, you went to a special ceremony at Uluru recently. Can you tell me a bit about what brought you there? So, this is the story of the murder by police of a Pitjantjara man called Yukon in a cave above a waterhole at Uluru uh, by a white mounted constable, Bill McKinnon, in 1934. Lorena Allam is Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. Now, there are several different versions of the story that have been told over time, and a lot of them rely on colonial records, and those records were pieced together very recently by the historian Mark McKenna for his book, Return to Uluru, which was published in 2020. Mm. So one is the version told by the constable himself, McKinnon, which was accepted for almost 90 years as what actually happened. And it's, I guess, it's the official colonial version of the story. But another version of the story is the one revealed to the public in recent years, and that's the Anangu version. So Anangu is the word for people in Pishinjara who are the traditional owners of Uluru, and they held a very different story about what happened to Yukon. Mm. Let's start with the better-known version, as you say, the colonial version. How does that story go, Lorena? So in 1934, Bill McKinnon was a policeman based in Alice Springs, which was then known as Stuart. He was sent out to find the men who had killed an Aboriginal stockman at Mount Connor, which is west of Alice Springs. Mm. So McKinnon went to find these men. He set out with his two Aboriginal trackers, Carbine and Paddy. About a week into the trip, they came across a group of six Anangu men who'd been hunting and McKinnon decided they must have been responsible for the murder and so they arrested them and began to take them back to Alice Springs. The men obviously were terrified and about a week in they escaped and while they were escaping, Yukon was shot in the side. McKinnon, of course, pursued them with the trackers. Two of those men were recaptured, one of whom was eventually tried and convicted of murder and spent 10 years in prison, but the other was let go. Mm. The four who escaped headed straight for Uluru. 
And so the police trackers and McKinnon following Yukon's blood trail eventually found him in a cave about 40 metres up the rock at the Mutajulu waterhole at Uluru. So what happened next is the main point of contention. And Bill McKinnon would later give evidence at a Commonwealth inquiry about this moment. So what did he have to say about this confrontation at Uluru? McKinnon told that inquiry that he'd fired a shot at Yukon's feet and that Yukon responded by throwing some stones at him, uh, crippling his hand. Mm. So McKinnon said that he then fired blindly into the cave in Yukon's direction. And when he went into the cave, he saw that he'd hit Yukon and he and the trackers then removed Yukon from the cave, brought him down to the ground and he died from his wounds there a few hours later and they buried him there. Mm. They gave up pursuing the other men and McKinnon later recorded in his patrol logbook that he was attempting to re-arrest Yokona, or Yokonana as he was known then, and shot him in self-defence. What happened after Yokon died? Was anyone held responsible for his death? So during the inquiry, the board did express concerns about McKinnon's harsh method. It had already been revealed in court proceedings that McKinnon had handcuffed the men to trees, kicked them, punched them, whipped them with ropes, deprived them of food and water. They had broken limbs. Mm. And the board said, we are of the opinion that the shooting of Yukon by Constable McKinnon, though legally justified, was not warranted. But in the end, there was no penalty. They exonerated him. Mm. Right, so it sounds like they did have some concerns, but not enough to punish him in any way. Yes, so as police shootings go, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm. McKinnon claimed that he'd been cleared of any wrongdoing and, and some years later a journalist asked him about what happened and he said he felt exonerated and that he wouldn't have done anything differently. And He stayed on to work as a police officer in the Northern Territory for 25 years. In 1959, he was awarded a medal for long service and good conduct. He lived a long life. He was still climbing Uluru in the 2000s before they eventually closed the climb in 2018. So that's what's recorded as what happened from McKinnon's side, from the colonial records. What is the other version of events that has only been revealed to the broader public in recent years? So firstly, Anangu say these six men had nothing to do with the murder. They were travelling east from Uluru and that's where they met McKinnon when they were out hunting. McKinnon was travelling west, so they just sort of ran into each other randomly. Mm. And so... We do actually have a recorded account from the only eyewitness to what happened. Uh, one of the Pichinjara men, one of the six people being chased, Joseph Donald was a brother-in-law to Yukon and he watched what happened. He was there at the cave. And he, in 1986, he told the documentary filmmaker David Batty, I want to tell this story, record me. So David did. <laughs> That interview is on the internet with translations and we've recorded some of those translations. So what is Joseph Donald's account of what happened after they escaped and went to Uluru? We came over a rock and saw our friend who'd been shot by those bad men. Yukun, Joseph and two others made it to Uluru. 
and Joseph describes, you know, seeing Yochan's injuries at that time. A 44 bullet went through his chest and, and tore out his side like this. He walked towards us. We got him by the arm, poor bugger. We put him in a cave to look after him. He then describes a kind of standoff when Bill McKinnon arrives at the cave. While I was looking after him, my grandfather said, climb up that slippery part of the rock. I climbed out there so I could see the policeman, McKinnon. I sat down, watching, watching. Bill McKinnon and the two trackers then arrive and someone calls out for him to come down. He got out his rifle and loaded it. Then he fired it at me. <laughs> he missed me. Then he fired again. I looked up and saw all the rocks rolling down towards me. Then McKinnon started running towards me with two rifles. I was sitting there wondering what to do. Shall I go down? So I jumped down and landed on the sand. I stood up and saw the policeman running towards me. So Joseph said he hid and held his breath. The policeman went into the cave. They found the one who had been shot. And then they brought Yukun outside to question him. They asked my brother-in-law, where are the other three? My brother-in-law didn't tell the police where the others were. So they shot him. The police shot him in front of me. He says they shot him there. And gestures to the middle of his forehead. Right, so not shooting blindly into a cave, but more of an execution is what this sounds like. Yes, there's a big difference, isn't there? According to Joseph's account, what happened after the shooting? Well, Joseph was distraught, as you can imagine. He just watched his brother-in-law killed in front of him. I started crying, but only tears. After crying, I went into the cave. I cried myself to sleep. Joseph also described the reaction from other Anangu after going home and telling them the news. We walked back to the camp and everyone started crying for me. Women were falling to the ground everywhere. All my mothers. I stayed there for a while. They cooked me a feed of damper and tea. I sneaked away again on my own. I never saw the police again. He was so afraid after the incident that he says he hid from whitefellas for decades. So when David Batty recorded him, Joseph was living at Docker River, which is west of Uluru, um, and basically all of the men who were involved had fled the area. Some of them, the most senior traditional owners of Uluru, just left the area for years for fear of being killed by McKinnon. So, Lorena, as you say, a lot of these stories that you've mentioned were known to the Ananu from the very beginning. When did others take notice, including historian Mark McKenna? Yes, so in recent years, the trail of this story was picked up, as you say, by Mark McKenna, who started looking into this killing in, I think, 2013. And along the way, he started looking for Bill McKinnon's only child, Susan. 
Uh, and he found her living in Brisbane. She's 80 when he first made contact with her. Wow. And um, she very generously said, yeah, you can go through my father's things. They're in the garage, which absolutely floored him. You know, that here were these really crucial pieces of evidence in the shed. Mm. And she said he could look through them, so he did. And as he went through the material, he found a trunk. Inside he found McKinnon's original police logbooks from the 1930s, including the logbook McKinnon had recorded in just hours after he'd shot Yukon. Wow. So he finds a key record of this moment, a private diary, after all of this time. What was inside? So remember that McKinnon had told the inquiry he fired his pistol towards Yukon without taking aim. But instead in the journal he writes, fired pistol at his feet, but he went into another cave, threw a second stone which struck the knuckle of my left index finger and quite disabled the hand for a time, called out, then fired to hit, heard no sound. Mm. Fired to hit is very different from firing blindly into a cave. Yes, and it aligns much more closely with the story that Anangu have been telling all these years. So after Yukon was shot, what happened to him? Was there a memorial? What did they do with his remains? Well, McKinnon said they buried him at the base of the rock near the waterhole where he died. But in 1935, the Board of Inquiry actually exhumed his remains and we think they took them back to the University of Adelaide around 1935. Um, and they remained there until 2017 when the university's human skeletal remains collection was transferred to the South Australian Museum. At least we think that's what happened because Yukon's bones have been lost. Only his skull has been found. Lorena, I know that there are thousands of Aboriginal remains held in museums in Australia and overseas. Why are there so many remains held at these institutions? Well, these men were collectors of bones. They they loved collecting Aboriginal human remains to study them. There were theories over decades about, um, you know, the origins of species and, you know, these bizarre eugenic obsessions with, with Aboriginal people as some kind of different race. And, I mean, look, it's disturbing that this was happening. This, it was a wholesale trade in Aboriginal human remains that went on for mm. decades and this was just something that they did. It seemed to be standard practice. How did the repatriation of Yukon's remains come about? In 2019, McKenna asked the South Australian institutions to look for Yukon's remains, and he met with Anna Russo, the museum's Aboriginal Heritage and Repatriation Manager, who confirmed that Yukon's skull was actually in the museum. Mm. And how they know this is that someone had etched the words on it, Yokonana complete skeleton. They'd etched it on the skull? Yes. I mean, the skull, we think, has been labelled because it was crucial evidence at the inquiry. And the South Australian Museum did look forensically, tried to find any other of his remains. And they tested, I think, all 700 or so unprovenanced remains in their collection, but they couldn't find any, any other parts of him. Mm. So... At that point, they started making plans to bring him back. Next, Yukon's remains are returned home, but is that enough?
The Full Story Summer Series explores some of the quirks of Australian life. Stories that make you laugh. Do you really think that, like, you tell your parents, like, when I grow up, I want to do comedy? No. Think. Jane Austen was basically Pakistani, I determined. And experience. I think I find synthesis endlessly mysterious. Listen to the Full Story Summer Series from the 2nd of January. Lorena, tell me about your journey to the Central Desert and to attend this ceremony. So we travelled to Arionga, or Uchu, which is a small Aboriginal community, maybe two and a half hours west of Alice Springs, maybe 190 people there on a dirt road, most of it. There's a lot of horses and donkeys on the road. And Arionga itself is a really beautiful community. Like it's nestled in the base of these big gorges, really peaceful. Mm. Right, can I come and stand over between you there so we can put it in the middle? Is that all right? Joy, do you want to sit down? So we went there on the Monday to meet Yukon's families and the families of the other men. I'm Joy and I'm from Arionga. I first spoke to Joy Kunia, who was Yukon's great niece. Yukon, Angaigo, Tamugo, Kurta. Yeah, the part of the story of Yukon, it was my grandfather's brother. We were accompanied by Tapaya Edwards, who's an interpreter from the Central Land Council. Tapaya is from Amata, which is an APY, Anangu Pishinjara, Yangajara community west of Uluru. And I conducted all my interviews with him translating. So we, yes, we are disappointed on for our, for, for our day. So will you be going out to Uluru for Thursday for that ceremony? Yeah. As part of the repatriation process, the South Australian Museum sent the family a report. And in that report, they found out some details that they didn't know before. And obviously really distressing. Some of them had only just learnt that Yukon's remains had been in institutions for the past 90 years. So, yeah, we are now to put this message about we are not happy. We are really sad and upset that that part of the history is really cruel and really bad for us. There were a lot of tears shed for him because, you know, he wasn't some long-dead ancestor. He was their great-uncle or their great-grandfather. They remember their parents talking about him. He was very much alive in their minds. And they had always wondered where he was and what happened to him. So then we travelled to Uluru for the ceremony itself, which happened on the Thursday. Um, arriving there the day before, we went to speak to Reggie and Cassidy Uluru, who are the most senior traditional owners of the rock. For the day of tomorrow, you can come back. I am our man, I am a respected man. Reggie's the son of Paddy Uluru, who was one of the men chased by McKinnon. He's, I think, they think he's in his 90s now. Mm. Uh, he lives, he and Cassidy both live in the Mutajulu aged care home. But on the day, I am not going to say anything. I am not going to talk to people. My feelings going to be deeply sad and I'm going to sit in the ceremony, sit in and, and, and just serve the day of, of sorrow. Oh. 
Yeah, that's all uh, I'd like to say. Thank you. Thank you. So, Lorena, tell me about Thursday, the day of the repatriation. What was that like? <laughs> it's almost, it just blows your mind, doesn't it? There's really no words for this place. So the morning of the ceremony was rainy and the rock was kind of moody, like it just, it was this deep purplish colour. It's just incredible. And it's been raining this morning, so there's lots of little rivulets and rivers running down the sides of the rock. It's quite cold. That music you can hear is the service that's about to start for him. So here comes Jochen down the path. It's a small box wrapped in an Aboriginal flag, like the size of a shoot box. And just as they're walking down, the sun's come out. John Carty from the South Australian Museum and Richard Logan from the University of Adelaide walked down the path with a box with Jochen's skull in it handed it to Abraham Paulson, who was the senior man to accept him on behalf of the family. Um, and then, they, then Abraham carried Jochen to a table and laid him gently there. And everybody filed past uh, to pay their respects to Jochen and gently put their hand on the, on the casket. And the ceremony began. Thank you for coming from all over. A Lutheran pastor, Malcolm Wilcox, gave the service in English and Pichinjara. The song, the imma that was being played as we walked past this one, was sung by members of this one's family in Arionga, Uchala. And then Richard Logan spoke on behalf of the University of Adelaide. I'm here today to say sorry and to learn. And apologised for those past practices of keeping human remains. We can learn how the systems that dehumanised him and Aboriginal people in general meant his remains were kept in an institution, not as a man, but as a scientific specimen. This is a shameful story. On behalf of the university, I say sorry to Jochen's family and to all the families affected by these historical attitudes and practices. And what was it like when Yukon was finally laid to rest? This was incredible, really, because they put Yukon in the grave, but his great nephews jumped in to receive him. So they got in this narrow, deep, narrow grave. They jumped in and held their hands up to receive the box so they could gently lay him to rest. It was a very powerful moment. So, Lorena, it wasn't just the university that was there to apologise, but also the descendants, the family of Bill McKinnon. Can you tell me about them? So McKinnon's brother's grandsons, Alastair and Ross McKinnon, and Alastair's wife, Ruth, were there 
they stood quietly at the back as the ceremony unfolded and they said to me beforehand, this is not about us, we're just here to pay our respects. Mm. And they were really moved. I mean, they, they were, there were tears. And at the end of the ceremony, alongside all the Anangu mourners, they filed past the casket. Um, Alistair McKinnon says, uh, you know, it was the least they could do was to come. He'd never been to Uluru before. That was his first time. And what a, what a reason to, to travel. Mm. And at the end of the service, um, unplanned, this stream of Yukon's relatives came forward to meet them and were hugging them and shaking hands and saying, you know, Palia, thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah, sure. I spoke to Mark McKenna as we were walking down to the gravesite behind Yukon's remains. And that's something, of course, that I could never have predicted when I started this, that I'm... That I'd be walking along this track to the waterhole with, with his descendants and um, and also with the families. And really struck me that this is truth telling. This is what it looks like. It says something about the power of truth telling, doesn't it? That what what can happen when, when the truth is told. Yeah, I, I mean just just the coming together of all of the Aboriginal families and communities and whitefella communities as well. Um, every thread of it is really building a different kind of community, I think, in the country, a different understanding. So, Lorena, the repatriation of Aboriginal remains is becoming more common. I'm wondering what the representatives of the museum had to say about their role and their responsibility in these types of processes. I was just sort of expressing that I'd actually found it quite intimate and complex um, bringing Yukon home myself. So John Carty from the South Australian Museum does this sort of thing a lot. Normally I'm dealing with ancestors who I don't know their names, but this felt different um, from the beginning. It's one man. We know his name, we know his children, we know his grandchildren, we know the man who shot him, we know his family, <laughs> you know? And so it's this incredibly acute sense of injustice and of pain and of unresolved grief. And he has a name, Yukun. There's something like 4,000 human remains in the South Australian Museum collection. About 700 of those are unprovenanced, which means they don't know where they came from. But his aim is to empty that storage, to bring home as many of those people as possible. And it didn't really hit me until I was sort of carrying him through the airport, you know, and carrying him on the plane and sharing a motel room with him. And it hit me that he hadn't been back on his country for... 88 years, and I just started talking to him. It was like, you know, you're, you're home, old man, you know? Yeah. How do you, how do you reconcile that? Do you have, I mean, clearly you're okay with that? It must yeah. be a very strange job to do. It's not in the job description. Nobody, <laughs> you don't sign up for this, that's for sure. What about for the family? Lorena, what are the next steps for them now that these remains have been repatriated? Well, the families, Yukon's families at Arionga have said they want a government apology. 
because that constable was acting on behalf of the Commonwealth Government and they want compensation. So really deeply we're focusing on to people to understand the wider world about the justice. As Joy Cunia said, it's going to be cost cost billion dollar to pay the compensation back to the family mm. to forget to forget about it mm. from the government. Mm-hmm. And Abraham Paulson, Yorkin was his great grandfather, uncle, said. So those people who have done the bad thing, or those organisations, we need to find a way to try to see them and the compensation come to us, to our, to our family, sooner than later. Mm-hmm. The part about repatriation and truth-telling that, that we need to come to terms with is the delivery of justice. And this is what the family in Arionga said very clearly. It's great we know the true story now. It's great the truth is being told. But what does justice look like for us? We have been wronged. Our families have been wronged. We've lived with this pain and anguish for 90 years and we demand justice. That was Arena Allam, Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. Mark McKenna's book, Return to Uluru, which we've discussed in this episode, is published by Black Ink and available in bookstores now. I do recommend also checking out our reporting on this, where you can see some incredible photos of the ceremony at Uluru and a historical photo of Bill McKinnon. Lorena's feature is titled Return to Uluru, Ending the Unfinished Business that Began with the 1934 Police Shooting. We've linked to that on the full story page. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you like keeping up to speed with the day's news, you should subscribe to our free newsletters. They're short and curated, so you don't miss a beat. And there's two of them, Morning Mail and Afternoon Update. Visit our website where you'll be able to subscribe to both newsletters directly from our homepage. Okay, back to the podcast.